We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. You're listening to Sorted Cinema, the film podcast over at Goomba Stomp, and I am Simon Howell, sitting in for Patrick Murphy, who will join you again in the future. And uh, I'm joined by a regular host, Ricky D, and other guest, Julian Carrington, to talk about 1995's La Haine. Let's hear a trailer. C'est l'histoire d'un homme qui tombe d'un immeuble de 50 étages. Le mec, au fur et à mesure de sa chute, il se répète sans cesse pour se rassurer. Jusqu'ici, tout va bien. Jusqu'ici, tout va bien. Jusqu'ici, tout va bien. Mais l'important, c'est pas la chute. Paris varoşlarında sıradan bir gün. Bir yabancı polisin saldırısına uğradı. Arkadaşları intikam almaya kararlı. Nefret giderek büyüyor. That was the trailer for La Ain, written and directed by Matthew Kasovitz and released in 1995. Uh, and if you don't know anything about this film, which if you know anything about like film culture from the last couple of decades, you probably do. Uh, it is a black and white drama concerned with uh, police brutality, hooligans, riot cops, violence, uh, tension, growing up, coming of age, hanging out. All kinds of stuff to our time uh, for all kinds of reasons. And uh, I'm joined by Ricky D. What's up, Simon? And uh, we're also joined by Julian Carrington. Back in the saddle. Woo-hoo. No way. The gang's, uh, the gang's uh, back together. All right. Well, let's get into it. Um, now, Ricky, was it your idea to talk about Lane? Yes, every week I pick a movie, or sorry, every second week I pick a movie, and every other week Patrick picks a movie. Patrick can't be here today, which is why you're filling in. This is my pick, and you're probably going to ask me why I picked La Haine. I think the answer is simple. If anyone has ever asked me what my five favorite movies are of all time, La Haine is on the top five. I think that this is the best movie released in 1995. I think it's one of the greatest French movies ever made. I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. I think it's the greatest film ever made about systemic racism and police brutality. I think, despite the fact that it was released 25 years ago, it feels more urgent and timely today in 2020 because of everything that's going on in the world. Um, I love this movie. I love everything about it, from the cinematography to the acting. The performances are across the board are fantastic, to the editing uh, to the soundtrack, there's so much we need to talk about. Um, so yeah, that's basically a, a quick summary of my of my uh, love of this movie. One of my favorite movies of all time. 
Can I ask when did you decide uh, that that it would be the uh, focus of this episode? How long ago? Or, or rather, like where where were we in relation to, uh, you know, say George Floyd's murder and the uh, protest that has sprung up in response to that? At what, at what point uh, did you decide you wanted to talk about this film? About a year ago. So, like, the thing is, is I, I, for, I, for anyone who knows me, I plan everything a year and ahead. It's just like when it comes to the website or even the podcast, it's just like I started thinking about things like ahead of time. And so we actually drafted up a list of all the movies we want to review in uh, 2020. Now, we were actually supposed to review the movie a few weeks ago because the anniversary was in May. But we just had some scheduling issues, which is why we're a little late. I think we're about two weeks late in terms of like when the movie was released and lining it up with the anniversary. But no, it's it. I mean, yes, the George Floyd and the protests and everything that's going on in the world today, especially in the United States of America, gives us an extra reason to talk about this movie today on the podcast. But initially, I chose the movie because it is a 25 year anniversary. But I think like 25 years later, this movie continues to give a voice to the voiceless to the young men and women who live in these sort of like ghetto neighborhoods. these uh, in, in France, they call it the banlieue, which would be the equivalent of public housing here in North America. And, you know, not much has changed, sadly, since this movie came out. And when this movie did come out, it was during a time in which there was like three weeks of unrest and, and protests on a daily, nightly basis in France, right? I mean, the movie is... Uh, the movie was was made because uh, the director, the filmmaker, the screenplay writer, who also acts in a movie and helped produce the movie, he wanted to make a movie about this specific topic, about police brutality, about um, minorities and, and people who are marginalized living in France because of the story of Makomi McBowie. I can't pronounce his last name, but you know the story of Makomi, the kid who was like killed by police. It's like a very famous story in France. If you don't know it, Google it. So basically, they arrested this kid. He was handcuffed inside a police station, uh, clearly unarmed, you know, like inside a police station, and he was shot in the head. And so clearly, this led to mass protests across across all of France. And because of that specific story, Matthew Kasovitz really wanted to make a movie about the subject. You know, what's funny, uh, Ricky, is that we had a conversation about whether or not I had seen this before. Mm -hmm. And I was sure that I had just because if you are a film buff or aspiring critic or whatever of a certain age, um, Laine is one of those movies that um, it's 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 a huge cultural touchstone for a lot of people and a huge um, a huge time marker for people i remember uh you know it's 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 such a basic uh film culture film i don't mean to say that as a as a denigration it's just it's it's a very commonly seen film for people who are um who consider themselves to be film buffs of a certain age and i'm sure we had it on at some point at the store i'm sure i'd seen bits and pieces but when i sat sat down to watch this i realized no i've never actually seen this no kidding. It was the first movie I put in my staff picks when we worked at Movieland Video. It became so popular that people used to actually steal the movie over and over, which was a problematic because it was a Criterion release. And Criterion mm-hmm. DVDs back then were super expensive, especially here in Canada. They still are. Yeah. They still are. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, yeah, you, you can you can certainly see uh, – I'm again, I'm, I'm actually shocked, Sidman, that, that, that you hadn't seen it previously. So uh, am I. Because – well, yeah, it's one of those films that just lives at the intersection of uh, sort of appreciation uh, from sort of an art house audience, but also a wider kind of cult audience, uh, 
you know, younger audiences that are into films that are, you know, sort of gritty and these kind of street stories. Um, it, it lives perfectly at that intersection. And it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of miraculous how, how well those elements are balanced. Um, I think it would have been very easy for this film to, um, you know, overplay its hand in one way or another, or kind of tip into melodrama or, you know, feel sort of stagey or inauthentic in some way. And somehow, uh, it, it really does avoid all that. And and so its aesthetic choices, you know, they feel sort of perfectly suited to the material. There are some uh, kind of lyrical moments or some moments that stand out as being, uh, you know, quite inventive and quite um, striking visually, but uh, but but they, they never feel ostentatious and somehow just sort of aesthetic subject matter, um, you know, audience, like everything kind of, comes together here and, and I can certainly see why uh, it, it, it has kind of established itself in, in the canon in the way it has. It, it was a mm-hmm. big deal when it came out. Like it, it made a big splash at the Cannes Film Festival. He won Best Director. It wasn't his first movie. It was his second film, but it was his, it was his breakout hit. But I, I like the fact that La Haine could have easily been sort of like a morality tale. Instead, he decided to present these three characters, uh, these three young men, has has just uh, a representation of what France had become, which basically is a melting pot of races and cultures and beliefs and religion. I mean, one of them is a young Jewish guy. He's white. The other guy is a young Arab guy from North Africa. And then you have um, Hubert, who I think his family originates from the Caribbean, right? I think I think they might be from, like, central africa somewhere i don't i don't know if he's caribbean but but yeah he's certainly um you know uh from either 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 the afro-caribbean or or from you know sub-saharan africa right yeah so i i just i love and simon you gotta you gotta cut in because it's your i guess it's your first time watching a movie i don't know if you rewatched it in the past week like more than once but but I like how it, it it presents these three young men who who live in this like sort of like I hate to use the word ghetto, but it's easier for me to say that than to say banlieue all the time. Um, or actually, you know what? They do call it the cité in in France, mm-hmm. and it it's really like a just a day in their life, and it's actually uh, edited in, in a way where you get timestamps throughout the whole entire film that that tells you the viewer how much time has passed since since like from one scene to the next scene right and i actually think the timestamps is really kind of like a genius way of structuring this film we've seen it in previous films we've even seen it in something like a kevin smith film like clerks for example but in this movie it really sort of like uh hammers in the point that these guys spend a lot of time doing nothing like just sitting around talking and like kind of like wasting their day because they don't really have anything that they can't do like what's weird about uh the cité this this specific like project housing in france is that unlike here in north america where the project housing is built in and around the city in france it's built like really far away from the city in this case from paris so for them to get into the city as we see in the movie it's like a pain in the ass like they have to take a train which takes them forever to get into the city which is also costly they're not exactly like rich kids they can't exactly afford to buy or do anything in paris they do make a trip to paris but i uh, you know what i mean like i do like the way the story is told and the structure because it's a movie that doesn't have much of a plot and it is a movie about these kids really not doing much, but yet it's probably the biggest day in their life. And I guess yeah. for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, it really revolves around the fact that it takes place the day after one of the famous riots in France. And one of the police officers loses his handgun. Now, 
unlike in North America or specifically in the United States of America, none of these kids walk around with guns. It's, it's unheard of for anyone who's not a cop to have a gun in France. It's not that kind of culture. So the fact that's, that the police officer lost his gun and one of these kids possibly found the gun is like a big deal. And so it just happens that Vincent Cassell's character... Vince, the character in the movie, he's the one who finds the gun. And in his head, he wants to get revenge for his friend who's in the hospital. He's in a coma because the police beat him up and and attacked him. And so he wants to get revenge by shooting a cop. And so the whole movie revolves around these three young men and the fact that Vince found the gun and is thinking about getting revenge by shooting a cop. The um, Seeing this for the first time, um, I think what really struck me about it was first of all as as someone who didn't really who only saw the film on the periphery i always sort of assumed from the from the dvd art and things like that that the vesak Castell character was like a racist skinhead which mm. which he isn't that's actually the film director <laughs> uh is it the director plays the skinhead who they capture who vincent vincent Castell's character is supposed to shoot but he decides not to shoot yeah um so that was kind of an interesting discovery, and I wonder how many people made that like erroneous assumption. Um, it really surprised me how well balanced this movie is, and I mean that in a in a few different ways. I think one of the reasons that surprised me is because I've seen a couple other films that Matthew Kasovitz directed, and um, I mean they're of ver- wildly varying quality, and certainly nothing that suggested to me that he was capable of something like this. To, to me, it's just such a it's a perfect union of subject matter. And the guy with the right bag of tricks to pull it off, and I guess the passion about the the topic. Uh, so I'm m- maybe not surprised. Uh, I don't mean to slam the guy because he made a great movie, but I'm I'm maybe not surprised that he wasn't able to reproduce um, this sort of alchemy uh, more than once. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm 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 with you because I think that's actually one of the really striking things, uh, you know, about this film is actually how much of an outlier it is in its filmmakers um, filmography Uh, because, you know, you you do occasionally get one hit wonders in film, but I feel like not nearly as often as you get in say popular music. Um, And for a film, a second film to be sort of this singular uh, in its quality and, and to be really, you know, unlike anything else the director's ever made uh, is quite a rarity. Um, it's it's yeah really striking so i actually i haven't you know i mean i i say that having actually not seen any of uh matthew kathovitz's subsequent films but but i haven't seen them because literally they're not talked about i've never been sort of like encouraged to see any, nobody's like hey you gotta check out babylon ad um it just you know <laughs> has I not knew that come was up coming. there's not yeah, there hasn't been like a retrospective that I, you know, you know what I mean. Like I, I haven't gone like out of my way to avoid them, but also they just they're just kind of non-entities to be maybe a little at harsh. I just don't you don't hear about them. They really aren't talked about, and and yet Laen is is so kind of singular and such a totem uh, that it, it really is you know quite quite startling. And you you kind of get the sense that Gothica may not have been a passion project. Exactly. No, but his first movie, Cafe Ole, is it's not bad. It's not bad. It's a pretty good first time feature. But like La Haine is his masterpiece. And you know what? He can make like 20 bad movies for all I care. Yeah. It doesn't matter. He made this movie. And I think it's one of the greatest movies ever. It's like one of my five favorite movies of all time. But but the thing the thing about the movie, though, is like when you think about it, like him, his cast and I think his producers 
all went to go live in the specific part of France, like in the the the, the projects, like where they actually shoot the film. They lived there for like before they started shooting the film and while they were shooting the film because they really wanted to get to know the locals. They, they wanted to feel comfortable filming there, but they wanted people to feel comfortable with them. They wanted to use the people who lived in that neighborhood in the movie as extras, as actors, which they did. And they just got like a real understanding of what it's like living in this type of neighborhood. You know, th th and also like it might be Vincent Cassell's breakout role, but all three of these guys were actors. I mean, the guy who plays Saeed was like a famous comedian, right? And so like, mm -hmm. I think there's something, there's something special about that to actually go live somewhere and soak in the culture and, and, you know, get to know these people and then try to make a movie about what it's like from their perspective, even though you're an outsider, that's probably the best decision he made while making this movie. Yeah. It, it, you know, there is obviously a, a sort of documentary quality to a lot of Latin in that, um, apart from the principal cast, a lot of those um, supporting characters are kind of non-professionals who are from the community. Uh, Ricky, as you mentioned, the kind of embedding with a community in advance of shooting is a well-established documentary technique. You, you, you know, you develop a, a rapport with a community if you're an outsider uh, that lets you kind of um, move in and out and shoot and, and, and develop a bond where folks are comfortable around you, especially in an environment where you know, typically outsiders filming is not uh, going to be kind of a welcome presence um, in, in a community like that. Do you know how many neighborhoods turned them down? I, yeah, it was like of the of the 20 they asked, this was the only one that would allow them permission to shoot. Yep, yep. Um, but, but also, uh, I really love the way that this film opens uh, with the documentary footage of the protest and, uh, and, and the Bob Marley track over yes. top. Um, I, I, it's funny. I, I pro, I mean, I say I programmed, I didn't program is definitely a, a, a glorified term for what I did, but, but years and years ago, uh, I used to like have a, you know, a little kind of movie group with some friends and I remember, um, having them around for a double bill. It was the end and do the right thing. And uh, Do the Right Thing was first. And I just, I love the way that kind of the riot at the end of Do the Right Thing almost like cross-faded into the riot at the beginning mm. of life. Um, You know, they, they feel like, like they're in direct dialogue. And certainly, you know, Scorsese and Spike Lee were undeniable reference points uh, for uh, Kesevitz. There's lots of kind of quotations um, from those filmmakers here, but but in a way that feels, again, like totally organic to the style and doesn't feel like he's, you know, cribbing or, or yeah. you know, quoting in, in, in a Tarantino-ish way, which, you know, I, I appreciate very much in, in that context, but it's it's a very different tone here. Um, he, uh, yeah. He, sorry, go, he, go ahead. He even throws in what might be the most extreme version of the Spike Lee shot that anyone's ever done mm. with the, whatever the dolly forward zoom back or whatever the hell it is. So, so are you, are you referring to the specific one on the rooftop when it switches to the second half of the film where they're shooting in France in Paris? I mean, I think so. Um, and the, 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 what I'm trying to explain is that they're standing outside and the contrast between the background and foreground is so extreme 
that it felt to me like like sort of the, the most uh the most amped up version of that shot yeah so mm-hmm. like what he actually does there is he recreates the very famous shot from vertigo i mean i know spike lee does it too but like as a reference to hitchcock's vertigo and i love how the three of them are standing on top of the roof and you see the city in the background because the first half of this film in terms of like the way it's structured it all takes place in this neighborhood so it's it's like a few blocks right the second half of the film takes place in the city of paris and there's a complete contrast in the way it's shot so the first half of the film looks completely different from the second half of the film not just because the first half takes place in the daytime and the second half takes place at nighttime but also the way he composes his shots uh you know even the editing process etc etc but that is a shot that really breaks up the movie in half and it's just beautiful how you get that zoom dolly and then we erase the city in the background what comes into focus is these three individuals and so I don't want to sound like a film snob because I'm not smart and never went to film school and never went to university. But I always look at La Haine as the type of movie where when you show it to someone, it will kind of give you an understanding of how much this person knows about the language of cinema. And, and what I mean by that is this movie, like a lot of the story is told through the visuals, right? Not necessarily through the dialogue. And like a shot like that speaks volumes of these three characters who feel small in the world like they feel like they don't have a future i mean the opening of the movie for crying out loud is the planet like we see the the planet earth from outer space right and and then we get these shots of these characters like throughout the whole entire film where they're in frame but it's these long far shots and they're so small in frame it's like they feel so small compared to the world around them i love love the cinematography i love the compositions i think that this is pure poetry every single frame of this movie can be paused and used as a screensaver it's beautiful it's gorgeous and did you guys know they didn't actually shoot the movie in black and white they shot it in color. You, yeah, that's right. I've actually seen I've actually seen some of the scenes in color. It's so bizarre. So what mm. they did was they actually shot the film in color. It was this very specific fi- type of film that they used and in which that when they process the negative, they can easily transfer it to this monochrome look so they can get the black and white feel. So yeah, they they actually shot it in color, which is mind-blowing because it looks beautiful it's not done in mm-hmm. post-production yeah, yeah um, the, the the detail about that was i guess they were transferring it onto a stock that was normally used for for sound like you would normally record huh. sound on this on this film stock but um yeah when you transferred the color film over it it, it gave it this like you know kind of distinctive monochrome look that isn't super high contrast in the way that um you know a typical black and white film stock would be but yeah it uh you know the the aesthetic of this film and simon i'll you know i know you were uh, about to contribute so um i'll make this quick but it, it really is striking and it must have struck you i imagine seeing it for the first time uh just how sort of timeless the film is in part, Mm. I think because of the black and white, you know, it's funny that again, I'll, I'll mention do the right thing, uh, which although is super timely, obviously thematically, um, aesthetically it's very much of its moment, right? Like that is a 1989 film through and through the haircuts, the style, like everything very much announces it as an eighties film. And this movie is only what six years, uh, more recent, but it is, you know, it, it looks as though it could take place literally at any time uh, in the, you know, 20, what, what is it now? Is it, is it 
20 it's been 25 years 25 years yeah since since it was made and i think the only thing that stands out as not being uh contemporary is the fact that there aren't any cell phones um but otherwise it 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 absolutely looks like it could have been made you know last year julian for a second i thought you were trying to remember what year it was now and i was like i I don't (laughs) i don't blame you (laughs) oh man really quickly like you mentioned the opening stock footage where he uses actual news footage and i i love the choice to open with that footage of the riots not only does it set up the story it's a great clever way to set up the story and get the plot moving right away but it adds historical political context and a backdrop to the neighborhood, to France, to to the characters, especially if you're not from France and you have no idea what's going on, right? It kind of had me Googling like France riots in 1995 and 1993 and so on and so forth because I wanted to know what the hell was going on in France at the time, right? Um, mm-hmm. And also th- th- choosing the Bob Marley song, like Burning and Looting, was the perfect, perfect choice. Um. And it's worth mentioning, like, that they also mention uh, a real-life case, which is from, like, 1986. Like, it's it's not like uh, that the things that they were struggling with were, were new or novel. Right, um, right. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it had been going on for a while. Um, when I talk about balance in this movie, uh, I, I sort of struggle with what I mean by that, because I feel like there's so many individual elements of the movie that are so well-balanced, uh, even just on a first viewing. Um, for instance, uh, we you know, we can talk about the fact that these kid, these these young guys, these these you know hooligans, kids, rastabouts, rapscallions, whatever you want to call them, um, <laughs> they have both. They have an ambient connection to events by like living in this time and having these you know having these relationships with each other and being having this antagonistic relationship with the cops. But they also have a specific relationship because they you know their friend is in a coma because he got the shit kicked out of him by a cop. Uh, and I love the way that so much of, like, the ambient relationship is, takes, is you know, takes hold for most of the first half or three quarters, and then a, a, a switch is flipped pretty late in the film at a very specific moment, and that's when you're made to recall, no, this isn't just an ambient relationship, it's a specific one. And there's mm-hmm. real pain and anger that is not just ambient, it's specific, and it, it really fucking hurts. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and it comes after, I, th- I think it's, I, I could be wrong, but I think it comes after that party sequence where they sort of are the most, uh, sort of dickish maybe they are for the entire film. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's when they're in the, in the, in the mall waiting for the trains to start running, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I just, I, I, when I talk about balance, I mean, it's, it's things like that, but it's also, um, there is, they, there is such a good, uh, there's a solid foundation here of making these characters uh, feel real and feel lived in and be somewhat sympathetic, but also having like really rough edges uh, and also not having and not having that balance feel schematic. There's so many ways you've seen so many mm-hmm. movies like this. I'm sure you have too, Julian and, and Ricky. So many movies like this set in the projects or having to deal with subjects like this where you can see you can you can see the puppet strings on various aspects, making sure that the balance is just right between the cops and the and you know and citizenry and all that shit. And every once in a while, you'll see a little bit of a puppet string here or there. But generally speaking, the balance is just uncommonly good. I have to talk about that scene. It's it's not 
It's not my favorite scene in a movie, but I think it's maybe one of the most, the most important scenes in a film. Because when they are at the the metro, it's it's a metro station, right? I think, or at the mall. And they're looking at the multiple TV screens on the wall. So the multiple TV screens are showing the news footage. And that's when they get the, the notification that their friend Abdel, who was in a coma, has actually passed away. Now he's dead. Again, the way he frames the shots, the multiple TV screens, it evokes the image of like a prison or prison bars. And then we get the shot of Abdel. We see the news broadcast. It announces that he dies. And we get the shot reverse shot of a close-up of Abdel's face to a close-up of Vince's face. And then what follows is we get the fantasy scene of when Vince fantasizes about shooting a cop, right? But you know, like, you know, everyone brings up Chekhov's gun. Right. So that's supposed to be the Chekhov's gun moment. Right. Where they actually use a gun. Right. And the whole plot revolves around this missing gun that a, that a police officer lost during the riots. But it turns out to be a red herring because it's just in his fantasy. And I love what happens next because the three of them walk away. They get into an argument because Hubert and Saeed, they don't want to have anything to do with Vince if he wants to kill a cop or kill anybody. But what happens next is they walk across a statue, right? And so I had to actually Google this, right? Because I've never been to France. And I'm like, what is it about this statue? It's got to mean something. And so it it turns out that the statue is called Ekut. So they stand in front of the statue called Ikut, and that's when they get into an argument. Saeed and Hubert walk away, and that's when Vince finally comes to the realization that maybe he should actually listen to his friends. And what follows is he decides not to actually use the gun against the skinhead in the following scene. He decides to actually do the right thing in the words of Spike Lee, right? So again the language of cinema and the way he uses shots and the background and foreground and the environment, like be it a statue or the graffiti on the wall to tell a story and to let us, the viewers know what these characters are thinking. This is an amazing movie, guys. I love this movie. I think uh, (laughs) another, another aspect of balance I wanted to bring up real quick is that um, another way these movies can go real wrong is, you know, by offering a moral or a message or, um, you know, a prescription, I guess, is maybe the, the right word to use. And uh, maybe I didn't detect what, maybe there is one and I didn't detect it. Maybe it comes out on multiple viewings. But like my overwhelming sens- sensation of what the moral of this movie is, is uh, shit sucks, don't it? Like it really, shit really sucks. <laughs> and like, I obviously, I, I guess part of the reason that it's, it's able to avoid um, the worst pitfalls, to me at least, is that, I, I feel like a lot of movies, especially around this time, they feel the need to kind of like both sides is both sidesism mm-hmm. between like cops and citizens. And that's something this movie almost completely avoids. Um, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that if you want to have a balanced, if you want to have a balanced, impartial movie about cops and citizens, um, then you need to have crooked cops in it and you need to have hateable cops and cops who do bad things. Like, that's the balanced version. And that's the version we get. But the thing about this movie is it doesn't pass judgment on anyone, including the police officers. Like, clearly the filmmakers and the actors actually hate the cops. Or at least they, they did when they were making the movie. Because they were very vocal about their feelings towards the police officers and the cops in France. But when you look at the ending of the movie, right? So when you get the shot after... Not, not, I'm not talking about the, the, the encounter with the skinheads. But I'm talking about the very final scene. The very final shot. So Vince is accidentally killed by the cop who pulls the trigger by mistake. He doesn't actually want to kill him, but, you know, he does. And what happens is Hubert takes out the gun. He points at the cop's head. The cop points his gun at Hubert's head. We cut the black. I think, by the way, that's a fantastic ending. Some people would argue it's not. But what I love about the ending is that it proves that in the end, 
both the police officers and the kids are victims. And so it's the same cycle of hate that fuels hate. Anyhow, so so I just like I like the choice of the ending cutting to black and the fact that we don't really know if the gunshot went off and it really doesn't matter because it's 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 not going to solve anything. It's it's just like it doesn't matter if they pull the trigger and or not and if someone pulled the trigger who pulled the trigger because in the end nobody wins and one thing i noticed watching this again for like the 15th time is the movie opens up with saeed opening his eyes he opens his eyes and the movie ends with him closing his eyes i never noticed that before Mm. yeah i mean you know again there is kind of tremendous attention to to detail and to um, you know, visual storytelling, as you were saying before, and yet somehow it's still, uh, you know, it ne- it never feels ostentatious or self-conscious or uh, effortful. Um, you know, there's the there's the scene early on with uh, Vincent in the mirror um, that at the time would have been, and on, with the budget they were working on, like evidently they must have used a body double and uh, and like built a second bathroom for the camera to kind of move through the mirror uh, as he's, you know, washing his face and doing his De Niro routine. Um, and yet that doesn't feel uh, as though it is, you know, super calling attention to itself. It, it didn't mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, it feels like a really organic moment and just kind of an ingenious way to practically achieve, uh, you know, what these days you could do, uh, you know, by sort of digitally erasing the camera or what have you. Um, but they actually use the, they use a stunt double, so it's not any sort of like CGI trick, but, uh, just to quickly cut in, it's amazing how he, uh, he recreates a scene that reenacts the famous travels that reenacts the famous Travis Bickle scene from Taxi Driver, like one of Scorsese's most iconic shots recreated in this film, and yet he does it in a way where it feels completely different and actually is a better scene than what we get in Taxi Driver because of the fake-out with the body double. It's amazing. Um, the uh, To go back to this this issue of... Um, <laughs> to go back to the, the, the thing about how, how the film sees cops and sees these characters... Uh, I'm not sure if it's true. I, I mean, I'm not sure I agree that it, 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 I don't, I don't know that the film treats all of its characters equally as, as victims or not, uh, especially given that some of them are literally tasked with serving and protecting and others aren't. But I, what I do think is true is that it mostly sticks to like, uh, a citizen or grunt's eye view, or you could even say like, a, like a young adult's, uh, eye view of these issues so that the, no one, no, no characters are ever sitting around saying, you know, this could be fixed with more arts funding or like this could be fixed. If we, if we had more, uh, a higher stipend to help pay the rent or, or if, or if there was a, a, you know, faster, faster than light travel to Paris or whatever. Don't you think that like when you're watching a movie, right? Like the three characters are not necessarily like the most charismatic young men in the world. Like they're kind of like dicks, like to the point where they, when they go through the art gallery, for example, there's really no reason for them to get all aggressive. They just don't know how to socialize with people. So they're trying to pick up the girls at the art gallery and it ends up turning to like a big, huge fight. But throughout the whole entire film, they're so full of anger, right? That everywhere they go, it's like a ticking time bomb, which that's why you get the sound effect of the ticking whenever we get the timestamp, right? It's like a time bomb is about to go off. Much like Spike Lee's do the right thing. There's plenty of scenes throughout the entire film 
where like for example when they go to the hospital it's kind of like they start the ruckus right they go into the hospital to create a scene the police officer who's a rookie cop is trying to just kind of like plead with them like you know please like i'm just doing my job blah 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 and they cause trouble so like like it kind of shows like that the problem like there's so many problems here right but the police officers are not the solution like they they need obviously they need social workers they need they need i don't know like better education they need jobs like the neighborhood needs to be cleaned up like there's so many problems that are going into like this area of like project housing and the problem is and you know i'm not going to get all political here and talk about defund the police but the cops are not the solution as we see in the movie like they all they do is they feel more anger and hate and so you have like all of these people in this like small you know neighborhood of like what three four five six blocks that are just full of anger the movie is called la Haine, which translates to hate but i kind of feel there's a lot of love in the movie and there's a lot of love between the three characters yeah i, I you know i would say actually and and kind of referring back to simon's point about balance um i i think what's striking is rather than being kind of a steady build uh towards you know like a, a ticking time bomb that is just steadily counting down uh there's a really nice modulation i think to the kind of level of emotion and level of anger in the film. Uh, there are kind of from scene to scene, these peaks and troughs where at times, you know, especially Vins, who's particularly kind of hot-headed, uh, seems to be on the war path, but then in other moments, they're kind of joking with one another and the tension is released. So uh, again, sort of balance in terms of, uh, you know, representing these characters, representing the, 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 the multifaceted elements of their personalities. It isn't just this inexorable kind of mission that they're on to take revenge on a cop. It, it, it's very much uh, a credible sort of day in their lives where there are moments where they're angry and then there are moments where they're, you know, just hanging out as friends. And, and, and likewise, kind of in, in terms of the relationship with the police, I, I, I appreciate the subtlety and nuance there because even, um, you know, kind of within the the police force that we see in the film, uh, there are, uh, you know, sort of uniformed officers and then there are plain clothes officers who are uh, more embedded in the community. And at times they are kind of more yeah. sympathetic to the kids, like they help get uh, Saeed out of jail uh, after the hospital scene. And then, of course, at the very end, uh, you know, it's one of those plainclothes officers that's involved in the in the in the fatal uh, accident. And clearly you guys do spoilers uh, throughout the discussion on this show. <laughs> right. 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 Clearly. Yeah. But when when that police officer lets him out of jail, they have this great exchange and he says, I'm here to protect you. And Saeed replies, he's like, well, who's going to protect us from you? So even though this cop is there to help them and get Saeed out of jail, that he still replies, but who's going to protect us from you? I, I was going to ask Simon if he thinks that this movie is at times funny, because you talk about balance, and I, I thought, I thought like I laughed like plenty of times watching this movie. I don't know if I laughed. I would say that it's not unremittingly bleak, um, and there right. are like long, there are long stretches of this movie, especially in the first half, where it has um, almost like a. Um, I, I don't know if it ever gets quite Richard Linklater a level of slack, but there are definitely long stretches where you kind of forget about um, the wider issues that the movie is addressing and you just kind of hang out with these dudes as they're like, you know, ripping on each other and hanging out and talking about stupid, boring shit. And I mean that in the nicest way possible, um, like stupid, boring shit that people actually do talk about. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's the there's the scene with the kid prattling on about the candid camera show that doesn't go anywhere. 
um, that is obviously meant to be kind of a lighter moment when Vince gets to the non-existent punchline is like, what, you know, <laughs> what did you just tell me that story for two minutes for? Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, 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 an avoidance of that kind of misery porn, super serious with a capital S social issue film. Um, I, yeah, that's, that's an element of the balance as well that I think is, is really, again, just so striking, uh, for a, a, a second time filmmaker, uh, who's directing and writing and, uh, yeah, working with this kind of up and coming cast. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a singular achievement. It, I mean, it is worth mentioning that at this point he had already, he was already recognized as sort of like a rising star as, as an actor in France. And he'd just done a, that film with Jacques Audiard. So, mm. you know, he, 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 he'd spent some time on sets clearly. And that was, that paid off. Yeah. I actually, find Saeed hilarious like I, I think this kid is funny as hell uh, I love it when the old man tells him the story in the washroom and mm. they're all confused and he's like why did he just tell us that story and like there's like a pause for like 30 seconds they walk out and he's like why did he just tell us that story like I just love Saeed he's hilarious anyhow we have a lot to talk about but we're at the 45 minute mark and I think we should cut to a break uh, we're gonna play a clip from the movie and when we come back when we come back, we're going to answer our five questions. So, okay. First up, favorite scene. Ricky, I, I feel like you're, you're going to have like eight of these, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay, yes, listeners, it's a time when we ask the five questions, and the first question is, what is your favorite scene? This is really hard, Simon. Like, I mean, super, super hard, because I think that this movie has like 12 great scenes, and to choose my favorite, or even the best, oh boy, this is hard. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I think is the best scene, and then maybe later I'll tell you what my favorite scene is. So I... <laughs> So, because there's a difference. So, I actually think the best scene um, comes early in the movie, and it's really subtle. So, the three characters are walking through the projects, and Hubert decides to walk over to one of the drug dealers, and Saeed and Vince walk in the opposite direction. So, they walk towards the background, and 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 Hubert walks into the foreground of the camera shot. It's a static camera shot, and so he's like directly in front of the camera in the foreground speaking to the drug dealer and I guess he's getting drugs and Vince and Saeed continue their conversation in the background but the director makes this interesting choice this great decision to focus the sound on the conversation that's happening in the background so even though Hubert and the drug dealer are directly in front of the camera and technically we should be hearing what they are saying instead it's the sound from the background coming from Vince and um, and Saeed that we hear, like we hear their conversation. So it never loses focus on the three characters and what they are talking about. There is something special about that scene in that moment that speaks volumes of what the director is trying to say about these characters and where they live. And I don't know. To me, I think that's the best scene. I'm going to tell you what my favorite scene is later if you guys don't choose it. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, how about you julian 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had similar difficulty choosing, you know, one particular scene, because even though I think this is a film where you can certainly identify uh, discrete sort of scenes and moments over the course of this day, I think it does all flow together uh, really well. And, and and there wasn't one scene that, that, that leapt out at me as being uh, head and shoulders above the rest. But I will say, I think, um, if, if not my favorite scene, one that uh, I appreciated um, and one that I think, again, kind of relates to the balance that we've been talking about is the moment um, where uh, following the dust up at the hospital and uh, Saeed subsequently being um, taken to the police station and then, you know, uh, uh, let go with the help of the uh, plainclothes officer, um, the three friends are, are walking back through one of the courtyards and uh, Vince reveals that he's you know, been carrying the gun the entire time. And uh, for Hubert, he's just, he's like, yo, I can't believe you, you put us at risk in that way. And he's just kind of out for a minute. And he goes back home and you get this scene where he stops in, um, you know, and, and his sister and his mom are there. Um, and, you know, it's just this like really kind of uh, low key moment where he's actually sort of this like big kind of softy with his family. Um, you see the way that he treats his mom, like he clearly has, you know, the utmost respect for her and is and is kind of contributing to his family in a way that enriches his character beyond, uh, you know, he's he's obviously a boxer. He's obviously this big, tough guy. Um, but what I love is that 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 Cassell doesn't go or, or rather, sorry, Kasovitz doesn't go so far as to kind of make him a complete, um, you know, just just like hero in that moment, because his sister uh, want some help with her homework. And I think, again, if this film were like a little bit less uh, finely tuned, there'd be a moment where uh, you'd also see Hubert is like a math whiz and he's like, oh yeah, you just need to kind of like do this and that. And he'd like solve his sister's math problem. And then he'd go into the kitchen and like give the mom uh, some money and, and, and you'd really kind of build him up as this sort of like saint. Uh, whereas I think it is a tender scene. It really does kind of reveal, you know, his tender side, but, but he's also not flawless. He's not kind of, uh, 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 you know, um, infallible in that moment. And I think what, what this scene also puts into relief, uh, and the, and the way that Hubert, um, is kind of disgusted by the fact that, that Vince had the gun and didn't tell him, I think there is this, you know, kind of interesting accent to, the racial dynamics in this trio where there's an element to which, you know, and I don't want to impose kind of like North American uh, race analysis necessarily that, that maybe doesn't translate one-to-one -to, -one to France, but there is this way in which, again, Vince seems to have you know, there's this recklessness to him and and a sense maybe of 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 imperviousness. Like he's willing to 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 bring uh, a handgun into the police station in a way that suggests that for him, the the potential consequences of that action aren't quite as real as they are to someone like Uber, who obviously just recognizes how insanely reckless that is and how bad that could go for them. And and so in that moment, the way that he walks away from that situation points up, you know, the, the different experiences of these friends who, although they're kind of of the same class, they live in the same community, it seems like Hubert is more keenly aware that as like a built black dude who probably, you know, even though he's, you know, barely probably 20, 21, whatever, uh, is, is, is not going to be treated lightly uh, if he's, you know, caught with a, with a gun. Um, in the way that maybe Vince just doesn't even pay attention to that. So I think that that's like a strikingly kind of contemporary touch 
pointing up the, you know, the differences in, in experiences that these guys bring to bear and, and their different sensitivities in that moment. I, I do love that scene, but it's interesting because the director, Matthew Kesevet, says that of the three characters, Hubert is the one that's most likely to use the gun. The guy who's quiet, but he would use the gun only when really necessary, whereas Vince and Saeed would just kind of shoot their mouth and they would act all tough, but they would never actually pull the trigger. So that's mm. that, that's interesting when it comes like that's coming from the director. And so it kind of makes me think about the end of the film. Again, it doesn't matter who pulls the trigger or not at the end of the film. Simon. Well, I just wanted to chime in I, before I get there. I wanted to add uh, speaking just from my perspective, watching the film for the first time. I got the sense from Hubert. It wasn't just about him being black and him knowing how he's perceived and how, you know, the the bias that cops bring. I also kind of got the sense that he was just a little bit more worldly than mm. uh, that. Like he was just, he had seen a little bit more shit and like whether or not he's done any more shit is kind of left uh, to, to me ambiguous other than boxing. He, he's had, you know, he, he does have more, even just through boxing, he has more direct proximity to violence, but you, you kind of get the sense that he just has a keen, he's more keenly aware of reality in general than, uh, totally. than they saw. Uh, who just like he he seems to need to explain to Vesa that like cop killers are not smiled upon, um, <laughs> and it's it's like like he really needs to and and ultimately he's able to prove to him pretty easily that like actually your grip on reality is uh, is is not what you think it is and you know we, we see mm. that when he's able to to uh, to show to, you know through the skinhead show him that like actually you ain't shit and you're you're not prepared to do the things that you think you are. Uh, and maybe maybe you shouldn't be the one carrying that gun. Um, as totally. for my favorite scene, um, uh, the one that uh, maybe I, I feel like it's the sort of film that the more often you watch it, the more different things stand out to you. But I have to say, the moment that I went from "Hey, this is a pretty solid," um, this is like seeming pretty solid for a 1995 movie about you know race and police, etc., um, to like, "Oh wow, this is really up to some stuff." Um, was uh, most most superficially for me was probably the breakdancing sequence um, where you know th these were we we have them in a rare moment of just like of really just like hanging out with a bunch of people and there's like nothing there's no real tension in that moment and mm -hmm. or at least at least not not like serious tension and it's then broken up with them just kind of being in awe of this really great breakdancer. Um, and then it's cut again by, um, you know, sort of shit popping back off. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's one of the showier sequences in the movie, which is why I'm a little embarrassed to default to that, but, um, just God, it's so well paced and staged. Wow. Mm -hmm. Nobody chose my favorite scene, the helicopter shot. I'm talking about, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? The shot in which we get to see cut killer, the DJ actually perform, right? And, I just love the way the camera floats from the window and goes through the neighborhood. Um, I was actually watching the making of, and they were saying that that was the most complex shot. It was also clearly the most expensive shot because they had to actually get a helicopter and hire a pilot and then mount the camera on the helicopter. But the problem 
The biggest problem came with the shadow of the helicopter because it was really sunny. And so when they went into uh, post-production, or maybe when they were they were watching the dailies, I'm not sure, but they, they realized that the shadow of the helicopter was seen on the wall of the building. And it was kind of weird that you're making in this movie and all of a sudden there's a helicopter flying through the projects. It makes no sense. So they almost had to scrap the entire scene. But this was the early days of CGI. And so they ended up erasing the shadow of the helicopter using some early version of cgi which mm. is kind of amazing because that 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 is a shot that everybody talks about the helicopter shot and everybody thinks it's a drone or they think it's cgi i mean there was cgi used to to remove the shadow but yeah no it was actually a helicopter uh actually ricky i, I hate to correct your your trivia here no but, um, i was not a helicopter? I, I, I was reading i was reading that they couldn't actually afford a helicopter so Metzger Kasovitz just flapped his wings or his arms really <laughs> really fast and that's how they were able to get up there it's you, I mean it's the magic of budget filmmaking you scared uh, me for a second I'm like come on there had to be a helicopter there's no way they had some kind of drone back then <laughs> well it's, it's funny I, I, I will admit to you uh you know watching it when I was watching it uh yesterday again um to prepare for the conversation I was kind of stumped in that moment watching that scene because I was thinking to myself well Clearly, this is too, you know, too early for a drone shot. And I just I didn't actually consider that the budget of the film would have allowed them to use a helicopter. And also, actually, the you know, it, it seems like a, a fairly low elevation. Like It, it seems like a, a shot that would be a drone shot in part because they're they're not that high above the courtyard and above the rooftops. And so I couldn't conceive of how a helicopter was able to kind of maneuver in that space in that way. So it, 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 it was kind of a stumper. Uh, as I was watching it, I was like, "Hang on, this doesn't seem like a helicopter." Just, just the logistics of the elevations and so on seem too, too kind of, yeah. Totally agree. I have the Criterion DVD. I don't think it ever got released on Blu-ray, but I had the, the DVD, and so it's two discs. And the second disc, there's like this two-hour-long making of, like interview with the directors and cast type of like featurette. And so they actually show footage of like the colored version, which is really bizarre when you watch the movie in color. And they show yeah. the footage of the helicopter. Well, I mean, you see like the shadow of the helicopter. Yeah, before. no, no, I, yeah. I, I, I actually, I do have. Oh, you there saw is it. a Blu-ray okay. edition. Yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, there yeah. Is. So I, I have seen that. Um, yeah, 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 and and I have seen that uh, that featurette as well. So no, I, I'm not, I'm not contesting that it is a helicopter. It just, it just, it, it's such that when you're watching it in the moment, like it didn't occur to me because again, it, it seems like it would be a drone shot today because it is relatively close to the ground and in kind of what seems like a narrow air corridor. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, yeah, it's certainly a striking shot. And, and for, for its time as well, I think, I think in some ways a contemporary audience would come to the to film today and just be like, oh, it's a drone shot. Like we're, we're very accustomed to, uh, that kind of shot. They've kind of drone shots are notoriously a way to add kind of production value to a, um, relatively low budget production. Um, so if in I, some ways, if I, I was, think, if, if I was meant to your cast of it, I would be low key pissed about the advent of drones. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and people assuming it'll be drones. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I also just I need to mention the fact that uh, the DJ he actually mixes uh, the song from NTM. Uh, I think it's called Nick La Police or something. But anyways, it's a, it's a song that samples KRS One 
the sound of the police. Mm-hmm. So it's a French song, like a French hip hop artist who samples KRS-One, and then he makes it with classic French music. In this case, Edith Piaf. Uh, and I don't know, Simon, you're like the music expert, so maybe you could speak to this. But I feel oh, like boy. I feel like this movie really helped launch French hip hop into the mainstream and into the world stage, because I remember when this movie came out. I think they released the soundtrack which was music inspired by the movie mm. or music you, you should listen to if you're a big fan of La Haine. And it was all French hip-hop. It's, uh, I think it's appropriate that that was the format they went with, like music inspired by rather than music from. Because something that occurred to me while I was watching it is that these kids are obsessed with American culture. Um, totally. You know, we get, the, we get the taxi driver quote for just one small part and, you know, they're... At one point, they're literally in awe of of, of just the concept of New York. Um, <laughs> but um, I mostly noticed American hip hop in this movie. Like, there's a there's a driving sequence where there's pretty prominently some French hip hop, but it really seems like um, the impression that I got was that the kids, and maybe by extension the filmmakers, are more connected to American culture because maybe it's communicating. Maybe it's got a harder edge than French pop culture did at the time. And certainly, mm-hmm. like, maybe, uh, I'm not, I, I may know a lot about a lot of different kinds of music, but I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on French hip-hop. Um, it's just not quite in my wheelhouse. Well, I was going to say, maybe it was just too nascent a scene at the time, or just or just not quite, um, didn't quite have the level of menace they were looking for most of the time. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, like, when you mention a pop culture obsession, uh, or at least obsession of North American pop culture, like, even... Hubato's bedroom like if you look at the walls there's like posters of like American movies or American athletes or uh, boxers like that are from the United States and yes, um, yeah, they, yeah. they reference like American Hollywood films and yeah so they, they even wear t-shirts that reference like big moments in, in the history of the United States or what what have you so yeah the director himself has gone on record to say that, you know, his idols growing up were like Scorsese and Spike Lee and Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola. So it wasn't like the Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, even though he's like a French filmmaker. Um, yeah, the, the, evidently. Well, but before I get to the next question, I just we keep bringing up Spike Lee. And I just wanted to say uh, that I, I don't think it's totally off base to consider this kind of the, the French do the right thing. However, I will say that one thing I'm I'm thankful for, having recently watched a couple of Spike Lee movies, is um, sometimes you're better off not trying to flesh out your female characters and just leaving them be and making this a movie about <laughs> men and your male right. characters. And this is a movie that definitely chooses to not do things versus doing them badly. And um, right. so I, I have to say, sometimes Spike does not get that right. Right. Um, I just need to mention one quick shot slash sequence before we move on to question number two. It's the shot when they go to like a nightclub and one uh, of the extra characters, like a supporting player, he whips out a gun. He starts shooting at the bouncer who locks them out of the nightclub. I think it's a nightclub. Anyways, there's this beautiful shot in which it's framed like a split screen sequence, but it's not really a split yeah, screen sequence. Yeah. All he does is he turns Vincent Cassell around. So he's facing a camera. He's up close. Like, his face is, like, full-blown in the frame. And in the background, on the right hand of the sc- side of the screen, we see the gentleman pull out the gun and start firing and shooting. And li- little little camera tricks like that go a long way in this movie. 
Uh, yeah, that that particular shot had kind of like a late silence, uh, late silent film kind of kind of flair to it that I really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, all right. Interesting uh, use of the word gentleman to describe someone who is in the course of <laughs> murdering someone. By the way, <laughs> uh, look, we don't want to judge. We didn't know him. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, who is, in your opinion, the most valuable person, most valuable player on Lahaine? Man, this is way too hard of a question to answer. Like, we usually choose the director because the director is, like, usually the captain of the ship. He's the one who oversees everything. I'm actually going to go with the boring answer, and I'm going to choose the director, Matthew Kasovitz, if only because he wrote the film, he produced the film, he directed the film, he stars in a film, it's clearly his vision, and I'm pretty sure he helped edit the film. Yeah, he's, he's co-credited co- as editor, yeah. Yeah, so for someone who's making his second feature, and for him to have so much to do and so much to worry about and not have, like, you know, because, like, sometimes you see guys who make movies and they have, like, the most talented, like, cinematographers and editors and production designers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, working with them so it makes their job easier. In this case, no, he kind of had to do a lot of the work himself and he didn't have a big budget. So I'm going to choose the director. All right, Julian. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know that, that there's really much room for contrarian opinion here. It's it's pretty overwhelming. And I think in, in some ways, the, the fact that his subsequent filmography hasn't really been in the same league is all the more reason to just acknowledge kind of what an achievement this was uh, in, in all the ways that, you know, Ricky just described. But I think particularly in the in the writing and the conception of these characters, for mm-hmm. someone who's 26 years old, I think, to be able to, uh, you know, create such lived-in characters. And obviously with the, you know, collaboration of his performers and and, and, and a very kind of astute choice to uh, really ground the film in um, kind of a naturalism and a realism and, you know, name, you know, having the characters kind of work with their own names and so on. Um, yeah, it, clearly that was a, a, a collaboration, but just, yeah, uh, all the all the roles that that Kasovitz played on the film, uh, the, the the quality of the writing, the the style of the direction, um, just you know, a, an accomplishment far beyond his years, uh, I think. And not having so much of an ego, where he actually allows his performers to ad lib and and improvise, because there is clearly a screenplay, but a lot of it is improv. Like he just let his actors be who they thought the characters are. Hmm. What if I told you that the most valuable player was, in fact, society? I'm just kidding. Um, since you both chose Kasovitz, I'm going to feel lame if I do the same thing. So I, I'll, I'm going to give some love to uh, Pierre Aime, a uh, cinematographer who is, like, if, if you had to pick a runner-up, I feel like it's got to be him. I, I agree, and, and I wonder how much credit you give to the director and the cinematographer when it comes to deciding to shoot the, the first half of the film completely different than the second half of the film. Um, we always talk about this on a podcast. Like, I'm not just talking about the compositions, but the lighting, the fact that the second half of the film is cl- clearly shot at nighttime, but it's way darker. And there are, like, tons of shots, like, where the characters are all in the same frame, but they're broken up, for example, in the washroom with, like, a a mirror, right? So, like, the the camera shows the mirror, and we see the three characters in frame, but they're all kind of, like, warped. 
like choices like that and the use of the foreground and the background and having the characters look really small and these beautiful like wide shots of them walking through the city and then cutting deciding to have like these extreme close-ups of the characters in the first half of the film um just like the waiter is seated like it's like everything's purposely done so like he wants the characters to be seated in, in a specific way so say for example saeed's in the middle and hugh Bout is in like the foreground and maybe vince is in the background like um, I, I love the, the geography and the the space, and I don't know if this makes any sense, but the way the movie makes them feel small compared to the rest of France. Um, to move on to our next question, because we're going to be here all day if we don't get through these. Uh, and no one wants to be here all day, including you, dear listeners. Uh, next up, if you could change just one thing, what would you change about Lahaine, Julian? Uh, well, so Ricky is not going to like this, um, <laughs> but <laughs> one of the only things, you know, and I, you know, let's, let's say I've been put on the spot and asked to change something. This is not necessarily something that like bothered me where I think it, it, it needs changing, but if I'm going to find one, one thing, um, that one thing is actually two things, but they're, they're under the same category. And, uh, those are the instances of gun violence that happen prior to the very end of the film. So you have a moment where um, uh, there's like a shootout. There, some guy has a shotgun. You know, he's in a car. He's dragged out. There's sort of a scuffle and there's a bit of a melee uh, kind of midway through the film. And then there's the scene that this is why Ricky's going to be mad at me. There's the scene that is, again, gorgeous in its visual execution with uh, Vin's like very much in foreground whilst this other character shoots the bouncer at the club. Um, there's something about those two instances that, again, I don't have an intimate familiarity to uh, sort of the the environment uh, that this film was shot in, its social context. I don't know how often uh, gun violence, you know, happened in 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 the French projects at the time. But I, I think in some ways, if there had really only been one one instance of gun violence at the very end of the film, um, it it would have been somehow kind of all the more striking that I, I like the idea of these guys being a lot of talk kind of and posturing their way through most of the movie. Mm. And then there's something about the fact that there's real gun violence in, on a couple of occasions, uh, you know, uh, perpetrated by people that they, that they are intimately connected with, or, or certainly like, you know, directly friendly with that, that, you know, it, it suggests kind of a level of, of, of violence and dysfunction in this place that again, like might be accurate, but somehow it, it, I don't know. It, it it is like, in some ways, um, it 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 just kind of sets a baseline of violence for this context that that feels. Um, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure quite how to articulate it, but I'm I'm wondering if you guys are 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 kind of picking up I, what um, I'm trying to get across here. I'm actually not going to push back. Um, I, I think if you're forced to change something, it's actually a good answer because I'm actually confused as to why the guy decided to leave his car, whip out a shotgun, shoot someone, jump back in his car, jump out of his car. <laughs> like, I was like, what? Like, I was like confused. I'm like, what is he trying to accomplish? And, um, but yeah, like, I mean, you can take out those two scenes and you still have the movie La Haine. It wouldn't really take away from the movie. It wouldn't make the movie a lesser film. Yeah. And, and, and again, if, if anything, you know, to an outside audience and, and, and to be clear, like th this may be reflective of, um, 
the the reality of the situation. Maybe there were reported incidents like this at the time. But I think if there's one element where, you know, we've been talking about the balance of the film. I, I really like the fact that as much as you think these guys are like antisocial, macho pricks, whatever, uh, if you're if you're outside that community, uh, those two instances of violence kind of take it to that next level of you're like, oh, these these young men really are kind of wayward. And as much as the cops might be heavy handed, clearly there is an epidemic of violence in this community that that, you know, they're just senselessly killing bouncers. And, you know, it, it, it kind of suggests that that uh, to some degree, if the police are waiting in heavy handedly, it's because there is like a real gun violence problem in this community. So maybe that is accurate. But my understanding of the French context is that it's, you know, not uh, like, say, America uh, in terms of the prevalence of guns and that guns really are this kind of, uh, you know, uh, outlier tool that, that, that is, is really not uh, sort of a day-to-day reality for most people. And I think that that's reflected kind of in the, in, in the scene in the garage where they're really kind of fetishizing this pistol and it's just so kind of alien to them and kind mm-hmm. of awe-inspiring. And, you know, somehow if, 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 if the only gun violence had been left to the very end of the film, I think it would have amplified that element um, a bit more. But again, it's not a it's not a huge, huge gripe of mine by any means. Um, so the things that I would change, they, these are actually things that I would change if I had the power. They're not like things that I would, you're putting a gun to my head and I have to change something and I'm weeping about it. The things that I would actually change. Um, two things. One, and someone's going to get mad at me about this, I don't really know what I don't really know what the Asterix sequence contributes to this movie. Um, oh my! God, other than a little right. bit of like levity, I guess. Uh, um, I, I I feel like you could lose it. You could rewatch it and then realize later it wasn't there and be like, oh, well, I guess I didn't really need that. Um, it's it's a, it's a couple of minutes you don't really need. Uh, and speaking of things you don't really need, uh, the one thing that did actively pull me out of the movie a little bit whenever it happened was we get that first mention of the joke about, um, oh, you know, the what the, the guy is falling to his death and keeps saying, so far, so good, so far, so good. We I think we hear that three times, or variants of it three times. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I, I got it the first time. Like, I didn't need two more mentions, including one, like, one where one of them literally says, like, sounds a lot like the projects. It's like, <laughs> oh, you were, you were so close. To getting through a movie and not having like one line underlying like underlying the theme of the movie so close uh well, it happens the hate, hate begets hate line which is <laughs> also um, that. to your earlier point about there not really being lessons like apart from you know that glaring one yeah I, and i mean i would i didn't even so much take take that as a moral or a lesson as like a bit of like hard-fought wisdom that makes sense for the characters to like to to say to each other in that time, you know, facing that situation, I don't necessarily think of it as like a moral you can export uh, mm. and apply, uh, you know, more broadly um, if you're actually trying to tackle these problems. Um, so yeah, th- there's just some little things I would snip out, maybe make it a little tighter and a little bit, um, and just reinforce how how strong and how um, credible the rest of the movie is. But uh, Astidix, man, I completely forgot about it. I mean, you know what really sucks is that the Criterion DVD that I have, the subtitles are really bad because I actually, you know, I understand French and I speak French and I'm pretty good at French. And even if it comes to the slang, when it comes to Verlan, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty good, right? Like, I mean, I dated someone from that area. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm watching a movie and I'm reading the subtitles and it doesn't really match all the time as to what they're saying. And the weird thing is like they would even take like a character like that who's clearly named Asterix. Like they say his name like 20 times and they call him Snoopy in the subtitles. <laughs> I'm like, what? right. Well, that's, interesting. That's, that's different on the that's different on the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray, they do subtitle it as Asterix. Oh, oh nice. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, they're they're trying to go for a relative cultural reference, going from Asterix and Obelix to uh, mm-hmm. Peanuts. Because <laughs> I, I guess. know I know a lot of people in Quebec they they watch the movie with subtitles because the French slang is kind of like hard to pick up. But I mean, I've watched so many French movies that I'm kind of used to it at this point. Yeah. Plus, I mean, French. I'm sorry, but. Quebecers do not get to complain about French slang. <laughs> don't get me started. Anyway, uh, wait, I don't need. We don't need to turn this into a two minutes hate for the French uh, podcast. Uh, um, does this movie pass the Howard Hawks test? Meaning, does it have three great scenes and not a single bad scene? I'm gonna just quickly say, despite my griping earlier, I don't think the Asterix se- sequence uh, qualifies as a bad scene. So uh, yes, I'm gonna go with yes. I'm going to agree. Like, no movie is perfect, and we can nitpick, and there could be slight changes we would make within a scene, but I can't think of one entire scene that is bad. And in terms of, like, three great scenes, I think this film has... I mean, 12 is exaggerating, but I would say I would say it has about seven great scenes. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to rock the boat on this one. I, I There's not a single scene here that I think is, is outright bad, but... Uh, by any means. And uh, yeah, I think there are several, several great ones. And before we move on to the last question, I have to bring up the washroom scene because we haven't talked about it yet. So, okay, mm. good. I'm glad I was going to do okay. this. I was going to ask okay. a bonus six question. Okay. So ask your question. I need to know. Bonus, bonus <laughs> question. Is the point of hearing <laughs> that old man story? Yeah. What is, I have a theory, but, I want to hear everyone else's. Julian, do you have a theory? I do. Julian? <laughs> uh, well, no, go ahead, Ricky. You, you've got one. I, I'm. I, let, let me think for a second. Do you need some time to bullshit one? That's fine. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so he overhears a conversation, and they're arguing about, like, gun violence, and Hugh Bout is like, it's not going to solve anything, et cetera, et cetera. The old man walks out. He starts talking about his friend, uh, Grunwalski, I think is his friend's name. And mm-hmm. I think the idea is that if he drops his pa- he can drop his pants and grab the man's hand and catch the train, or he can hold on to his pants but never get on the train but lose his life. And so to me, it's this, this idea of, like, he wants to keep his honor. He doesn't want to drop his pants because then everyone would see him, like, naked and whatever, and he was, like, going for a ship and never actually finished shitting. Uh, so he he chooses that, and he ends up dying, which is, like, the stupid thing to do. Uh, I don't know if that's a metaphor for what Vince is trying to do, but that's mm-hmm. kind of like my understanding of the scene. Regardless, I thought it was hilarious. Uh, so my cockamamie interpretation is it's not so much about the specific story. It's more like the 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 chasm between these people, like between between the generations who are who are both, you know, going through it, uh, albeit in totally different contexts um, and he i don't know what the old man thinks he's accomplishing in this moment or if he's just out of it i don't know but the, the impression that that the feeling that i got was just of a of a chasm that cannot be crossed and there's just no understanding between the, there's no cross generational learning project where people try to try to get better about processing violence 
or like, um, or, you know, share, share swap and swap stories about hard times to like figure out some new solution. It's all just like total miscommunication to a, to a comical extent um, yeah, yeah. across the ages. That's, I, that's my I, best I don't, guess. I don't understand. I don't understand your reading. Are you saying that like, he's saying that some people have it worse? Like, I, I don't understand. No, I, what I'm, what I'm saying is that, um, if my interpretation is that Cassavitz is saying every generation goes through its, its hardships, the, the tragedy is that we don't learn from each other and we don't, we don't pass down knowledge that would help, uh, to help improve or like, um, help give perspective in difficult times. Uh, it's just, it, it can't be communicated across the generations. But then <laughs> I'm so, I'm like Saeed right now. I'm like, why did he tell us this story? <laughs> um julian well i mean this isn't so much to do with the content of of the story but i think um you know kasevitz has talked about wanting the second half of the film to be uh you know sort of a uh, uh to accentuate the degree to which these guys are out of place in this space and in the city and and, and the degree to which the city is an, an alien kind of uh, space where they are on this kind of adventure. And I think that scene is just representative of, um, you know, them being completely like out of their element. Who is this random kind of gnome like old man popping up in this washroom with this like kind of horrible, but kind of like funny story, uh, you know, about someone freezing to death uh, on their way to like a gulag. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think apart from the kind of whatever metaphorical, uh, content or or you know meaning you want to take from from the the theme of the story that he's telling i think it just accentuates the 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 way that they are very much fish out of water in the latter half of the film i don't know i just think that the bottom line is you can't hold on to your pants and grab the person's hand at the same time anyway uh last question last but not least would you, who would you recommend this film to slash who do you see as the ideal audience? Uh, well, this is a kind of, a, I mean, I guess it's not strictly, you know, instructional to our listeners because we're presuming that they've already seen it since we've spoiled it heavily. Um, but, but to the earlier point, you know, I, it, it feels like a film that lives at that unique intersection where I feel like I could show it to almost anyone, but yes. like I could show it yeah. to, could show it to friends of mine who are not particularly like film buffs but who like again kind of just you know engaging like urban crime stories and and that's what this is but it's also obviously got art house bona fides um and kind of everything in between so it really does feel like it in 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 the weirdest way it's like a four four waller like a you know like a four segment four qua i mean it's not for children <laughs> but but just about every other just about every other audience segment i can see some like taking away uh something from this you know it's, parents it's, it's if obviously... you want to toughen up your kids i've got a great way for you to do it um it's yeah. funny you say that because i just told my nephew to tell his teacher to show this movie in class because i actually think that this is a movie they should show to kids i'm not talking about like seven-year-olds but in high school sure, it's, like it's high not school, really yeah, violent absolutely. like if the kids in grade seven like coming into high school there's no on-screen violence like you do see a few gunshots but come on if you go on twitter 
and you just look at what's happening right now in the news, it's like 10 times worse than watching this movie. I mean, you actually see people getting shot on Twitter. There is there is Vince like slumped by the car with a with an exit wound in his head. Uh, so not not entirely free of graphic shots, but it's true. But it's I not mean, like it's a close up or a, yeah, Americans are only worried. Uh, you know, for the Americans at home, I know you're mostly worried about sex and nudity, and there's none, so you're fine. It's so true, true, right? The U.S. is so weird about stuff like that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I would recommend it to anyone who's not racist, like. Like, in, in all honesty, this movie is amazing. It's like, like this is a type of movie, like, jokes aside, this is the type of movie where I've recommended this movie to so many people over the past, like, whatever, 25 years, whatever, since the first time I saw it. I didn't see it 25 years ago, but whatever. I don't remember when I first saw it. But um, I've recommended this movie to so many people. Every single one of those people has, have told me they love this movie. Not I liked it, it was okay, or I didn't like it, they all love this movie. I have not yet met anyone who says they dislike this movie. And I guess the best comparison point, um, maybe this is unfair, but it's it's do the right thing. Like, it's kind of like the do the right thing of France, you know? And to the extent where Spike Lee actually criticized the director for stealing his ideas. I mean, first of all, if you're in a position to recommend movies to racists, I don't know what to tell you, because um, I'm going to set that aside. Um, I think there's probably some better things you can recommend uh, to racists other than movies. Um, but the uh, I would say that the only group of people that I would not recommend this to um, is... No, I don't know any, uh, as far as I know, except for the tiny one that lives inside me and I try to school every day. Um, <laughs> but the... Uh, <laughs> um the i would say i wouldn't recommend this movie to because you know sometimes you know people and their taste you know their taste so well and you know that for instance there are people who need characters to uncomplicatedly root for like mm. if i tried to show this to my parents my parents would not like this movie so wait so are you saying that you think these three characters by the end of the film are unlikable no no that's not what i said i i, I what i mean is it's it's your identification with the characters is complicated throughout the movie by, you know, various, just by their overall roughness. Um, and maybe by the end, it's an uncomplicated uh, sympathy that you're experiencing. But there are some people for whom I know it would be too much of a slog to get there and they'd wonder why they watched it. I Not all people are good at watching movies. I'm just, there are probably some people you know who are bad at watching movies and they shouldn't watch this. That's all I'm trying to say. Um, of the three main characters, Hubert, Vince, and Saeed, who would you say is your favorite or the one who and the most likable by the end of the film? I mean, I, for, I may as well get, get this out of the way. To my mind, there's no question that Saeed is the most like outwardly likable, the most like demonstratively likable. Um, you know, you, you can see yourself having a conversation with your bail, but he's so um, he's so restrained most of the time that it's just not as, as obvious. Um, whereas the they saw Cassell gets the most to do to my mind in terms of like emoting and you know the the greatest range of uh expression and experience or whatever um but yeah in terms of someone you'd actually like want to be friends with or whatever i could i i could see a younger version of me hanging out with saeed and like shooting the shit by the way, his performance, I mean, all the performances are great, but Vincent Cassell is incredible in this film. I think the most charismatic character is Saeed, but I think the most likable is Hubert. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I find Hubert again of the of the three of them like the most even tempered and. Um, I actually, again, I, I like that they give him that moment in the art gallery where he is uh, like a bit more of a dick, where he starts flipping the table on the way out. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I like that they make sure, again, to kind of shade him in in a way where he isn't just sort of the conscience of the trio. Um, but overall, I, you know, his kind of laid back slightly, um, you know, uh, he, he, again, he's a low key figure and, and, and I kind of vibe with that. Well, I think that's that's about it. Um, do check out Sorted Cinema and our our backlog of podcasts. And uh, personally, one thing I, I I really wanted to quick quickly plug is if you've made it this far into the podcast, you're probably the sort of person who uh, likes watching movies and perhaps misses going to the movies. Uh, so a little side project uh, that well, I mean everything to me is a side project uh, that I've been doing uh, is I've been uh, streaming movies online uh, at pre-assigned times, sort of like you might at a movie theater. Uh, I can't talk about what the movies are because, uh, you know, liabilities and stuff. Uh, but it's cool stuff that you're not going to find on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. Uh, and all the details will be in a Google Doc uh, that will be in the show notes. Can we say Ooh. that that's going to happen? Yeah, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. So um, the podcast, first of all, is available just about everywhere. Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, like you name it. Um, you can find the post over goombastomp.com or sortedcinema.com. But I usually do put all the information in the post with all the links so we can link to you and Julian and anything else you want to link to. Great. And uh, yeah, and it's obviously it's 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 free and easy to get into. And I'm even looking for people to help uh, program other stuff because uh, right now I'm running three screenings a week and that's great, but it's just stuff that I like and be cool if other people could play stuff they like at other times uh, that are more convenient to other people, etc., etc. That's it. That's my whole spiel. I'm not on Twitter, uh, so don't look for me on Twitter. All right, you can find me on Twitter. I run the official Twitter account for Goomba Stomp Mag, um, which is uh, well, Goomba Stomp Mag. And I actually have my own personal Twitter account now, guys. Uh, brand new. My my handle is never once taken. And Julian, can we find you online on Twitter anywhere? Anything you want to plug? Um, yeah, you can, you can find me on Twitter at JV Carrington. Um, and actually, uh, I will just delve right back into the conversation for one second because I should have, this should have been one of my responses, um, to our questions in terms of what, what audience would I recommend this to? Oh, um, right. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I actually think if anybody is a fan of La N, um, and hasn't seen the Lodge Lee film, uh, Les Miserables from last year, uh, I think they should check that film out. I, I personally don't think, I, I have some qualms with, with Les Miserables, um, but it, it, it is so much in dialogue with La Anne. It's so similar in terms of its setting and its dynamics. In fact, it kind of flips the, the dynamic in that it's about three cops. It's like an interracial trio of, of cops. Um, you know, it's sort of somewhere between Training Day and La Anne. And um, very much, again, rooted in a similar context, uh, you know, violence and unrest in uh, these housing projects on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and also kind of within the context of uh, France World Cup win uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so it, it feels very much like a follow up to La N. I, again, I don't think that it's um, necessarily as as strong in, in every facet, but it is by a filmmaker who 
grew up in this environment. Largely, he's uh, Afro-French. And I think that, you know, for all Matthew Kasovitz's, uh connections to the to the community in which he was filming, you know, he had friends from the area and so on. Uh, I think largely if you want uh, a perspective of someone who grew up in that community, um, Les Miserables is worth uh, worth checking out. No, no relation to the to the Victor Hugo. I, I was, uh, <laughs> was going to say. Do do not accidentally watch any other movie called Les Misérables while researching. That. This is Absolutely clearly not. not the Tom Hooper film. This is no. this is the one that came out in 2019. Look it up on Internet Movie Database to make sure you got the right film. It's also not the Club the Douche film, although you should watch that one because it's good. All right, all right. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been it's been fun to uh, join you guys again and, and to chat. It's you know I've I've uh, I've missed having an outlet to uh, just you know shoot the shit on on films with uh, with a couple of friends. So uh, thanks for having me back. Julian, are you on the are you on the interwebs anywhere? Um. Well, again, so I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm not super active, but but by all means, give me a follow there if you like. And and I'm not really writing to the same degree anymore. Um, but I program for um, a festival in Toronto called Plant and Focus that is primarily uh, documentaries that concern, uh, you know, the environment. But we've certainly got a politics and human rights element there as well. And then um, I work for the hot docs industry team by day. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active in the documentary space these days. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm online. All right, listeners, Patrick should be back next week. We're going to talk about Gremlins and Gremlins 2, the new batch. Thank you for listening. Let's go!